John's Gospel, please, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And we'll commence at the first verse, just reading some of these verses together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him not was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And it was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Amen. Just ending a reading there at the end of verse 18. And we know the Lord himself will add his own divine blessing upon it. Having opened the gospel account with the authoritative statement that Christ is eternally and equally God. John then swiftly moves on to speak of the Saviour and those things that emanate from him, light and life. And it is while he's found speaking of this light and life that he suddenly brings us to consider the one who knew the Lord and who showed the Lord to many in Israel, even John the Baptist. One who would be the forerunner to the Saviour as one sent of God. He was to be the messenger. He was to be the last of the prophets. who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah that was promised. And there was a uniqueness with John the Baptist. Not only in the one whom he preached of. But there was uniqueness with John himself. For he's only one of three Nazarites. That we read in all the canon of the scriptures. The others being Samuel and Samson. Nazarite was one. It's different from Nazarene now. Christ was a Nazarene. But a Nazarite was one who is forbidden to touch a corpse. And also they didn't partake of the fruit of the vine. They were those who let their hair grow. Numbers chapter 6. I can just draw your attention to. Three verses there, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, 
to separate themselves unto the Lord. Verse 4, all the days of his separation shall eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. Verse 6, all the days that he separated himself unto the Lord, he shall come with no dead body. Verse 8, all the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. And you'll notice about the locks of the hair spoken about as well in verse 5, the grapes in verse 3. And by those things, the Nazarite showed to the world that their affections were to the Lord. And they were above the earthly matters of this world. They were above that of family and of friends. Uh, Their appetites were given over to God. Their body was kept in submission. And their appearance unto God. It was a high standard of consecration. And John the Baptist as such set apart unto the Lord. After those 400 years of silence, or that's the space between Malachi and the Gospels, those years of silence and darkness, John the Baptist was sent that he might bring fresh light to the nation of Israel. And I want us tonight just for a few minutes to consider what he states and how the Apostle John describes the appearance of Christ. You'll notice firstly the illumination here. It is made clear that John the Baptist was not the light. But he was to bear witness of that light. Verse 8. And that is illustrated, I believe I've used it before. But it is worth bearing repetition. It's like the moon in relation to the sun. The moon isn't the sun. But the work of the moon And its purpose is to reflect the greater light of the sun upon this earth. The moon is poised in space to bear witness of the light which is the sun. The moon's function is somewhat temporary. For the day comes on. And the sun shines directly on the earth. Dispelling the shadows and the darkness. And so it was with John the Baptist. And of that light, the Apostle John speaks of it as being revealed in the words of verse 9. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Every person without exception has some light. Those who haven't received the light of the written word of God, they have the light of the creation, the light of a creator God. And they have a conscience. A conscience within that reveals right and wrong. God give unto the nation of Israel the added revelation of the law of God. And John speaks here of God giving the world the light of Christ. And with privilege, of course, comes that of responsibility. God holds people to account for the light that has been revealed unto them. We can say tonight in Ulster there are very few that are without excuse. You'll consider this light was resisted. Verse 10 and 11. He was in the world. The world was made by him. The world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Looking back, John was amazed. As how quickly the Savior had been rejected. The world that was made by the Lord. He was co-creator with the Father. That's some of the teaching that you receive in the opening verses of this very chapter. He's co-creator with the Father. And yet he was, the, the, the world was to reject this light. He knew everything about the world. 
He knew all the astronomy, all the chemistry, all the physics, all the biology, not because he studied it, but because he set the laws of those things. He's the author of them. And so he knows every law that is known to science and every law yet to be known to science. But the tragedy of it all was that he was in the world and the world knew him not. He was resisted even by his own countrymen. For centuries they had been prepared for the coming Messiah. The prophets foretold of his birth. They foretold of the place where it would be, yet they resisted him. How like Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is a type of Christ. You think of Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, the one who was set apart by the father, wanted an errand, one who stood out in contrast to the wickedness of his brethren. He was hated, especially by those very brethren because of his dreams, which foretold, of course, of the preeminence and of his exaltation, and they envied him, and finally they laid hold upon him. They sold him into the hands of the Gentiles, And that after he had come from the immediate presence of his father. What a picture. How it was fulfilled in Christ himself. And you'll note he was also received. There's one of the great buts in the scriptures. We have many of them. You'll find a but in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. Here's another. But, verse 12, as many as received him, to them give a power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Thankfully, there were countless who received him, and still they are receiving him. For in these words is couched the new birth of every soul born again of God. There is his believing in his name. There's the receiving him. As our Savior, there is the becoming of a Son of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within. We become a new creature, new creation by the power of God. Men and women, child of God, tonight we can say, what a standing that we have tonight in Christ. He's given us the power or the right to become sons and daughters of the King. We're saved not by human descent, not by human flesh. Not by human will. We would will that all our family members, all our friends would be in Christ. But we can't will them into heaven. But we're saved, we're born again, as verse 13 makes it clear, of God. It's from above. There is the illumination. And John was sent forth that he might bear witness of that light. That light that is Christ. What about his incarnation? Well, you might say, I doubt you're in the wrong gospel. I doubt you need a move to a Matthew or Luke. Well, we might do that on Sunday, if the Lord spares. But I want you to notice and understand that John also has a piece on the incarnation. We all know, of course, the manger scenes that are well known in Matthew and especially Luke. Let's not forget, let's not miss out that John has what has something to say about the incarnation of Christ as well. And in doing so, he speaks more of its significance. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He states the word was made flesh. With any birth, there's a new creation. There's a new personality. I was out seeing we Abigail this week, and she have will have, have her own personality. And it'll not belong to she shows it, if she's like any woman. <laughs> so everybody's got their own personality. Men's no different, of course. But the Savior's birth was unique in that there was no new personality because he existed from all eternity. The Lord took unto his divinity the form of our humanity, yet without sin. No wonder his birth then was announced by the angelic hosts. And of that birth, John sums it up in just a few words. The word was made flesh. He did not cease to be God. But at the same time, he took unto himself our nature. Two natures and the one and the same person. His humanity was both real and complete. He remained the same person as before. But he was made flesh. And we see instances of his humanity right throughout the gospel accounts. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 2, however. And you notice how it is spoken of here, verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. <coughs> For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, speaking about God's people, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He had to become man if he was going to redeem man, if he was going to defeat the old devil at the cross. But John then causes us not only to think of the significance of the Savior's incarnation, but also to consider the spectacle of it. For he says, he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And the word dwelt there gives the thought of pitching a tent, of tabernacling. As if of old with the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was pitched in the midst of the other tents right round about. And there are some who have, I'll just throw this out to you, whether you've ever come across it or not, I don't know. But there are some who have taken this word even further. Dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And they have suggested that it's the first day of the joyous feast of tabernacles. And they suggest, go on to suggest, that that feast, of course, was held toward the end of September and that was the day of the Saviour's birth. Eight days later then would have been a circumcision, or was a circumcision, but it would have been fallen on the great day of the feast. Now men and women, that sounds plausible. It might even sound good, but we cannot be dogmatic. Why? Because the scriptures don't tell us. Just as much as we can say, uh, almost of a certainty, it wasn't on the 25th of December. We don't believe that. I just throw that out to you. Some take that word, dwelt, tabernacle, and they, they, they bring it to that conclusion. But the word tabernacle that he uses there, it certainly does throw us back into the Old Testament teaching of the tabernacle. And, and if you think of the tabernacle, 
and we did touch upon some of the pieces of furniture in the study of Moses. You look at that tabernacle that was pitched in the midst of Israel. There was no beauty on the outside. Just old, dark, badger skin coverings. No beauty in it. Its beauty, its glory was all inside. Hidden from view to the casual spectator, it's just another tent. What beauty there was in that furniture. What beauty there was in the curtains of blue, of purple, of scarlet and fine linen. And there was, of course, the Shekinah glory of God signifying his presence, resting over the holiest of holies and the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And so John says of Christ, he dwelt among us. He pitched, if you like, his earthly tent, and we beheld his glory. He did not lay aside his deity. He veiled his glory. Wesley brings that out in the Christmas carol. I was going to sing it tonight, but I want to sing it on the Lord's Day, really. Charles Wesley's number 76. He speaks there of his glory been veiled. Was that not prophesied in Isaiah 53? I want you to turn back. That well-known chapter, the chapter of the cross, brings us to Calvary. Oh, he's, he's writing here many hundreds of years before the incarnation, but he's guided by the Holy Spirit with prophetic accuracy. And it can only speak of Christ. And you look at the words of verse 2. You have read them many a time. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there's no beauty that we should desire him. Just want to stop there. It's enough for us. You think of the Saviour's earthly life. It's really cast into two distinct periods. The first 30 years. And then his public ministry, the next three and a half. First 30 years were years of obscurity. Brought up in Nazareth. Backwater town we would call it. Nothing to be desired to go there. But that's where he is brought up. Born in a manger. And then there's his public ministry after that. Well, the first 30 years are mentioned in the first part of verse 2. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. Just something that you'd find in the wilderness, in the land of Israel. There's only one brief appearance recorded in those 30 years, and that is when he was 12 years of age, sitting among the doctors and the Teachers of the law at the temple. In the event Israel you see were looking for a warrior king. A warrior king that would throw off the Roman yoke. But God sent the Messiah that was promised. In the form of a babe. On the Bethlehem's manger. Those years were obscure. Not until 30 at his baptism was the father's voice heard to say from the heavens, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then his short public ministry is after that. And that's spoken of in this verse as well. 
because in his public ministry he was subjected to the most intense public scrutiny. And the verdict pronounced by the prophet, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. First part of two, for verse two, is the first 30 years of his life. Closing part is the public ministry part. He has no form nor comeliness. The word comeliness. In Psalm 21, in verse 5, it is translated as majesty. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou led before him, <coughs> upon him. That's the same word. The prophet Isaiah is saying he hath no form nor majesty. It conveys the idea of royal splendor, the absence of which was certainly a feature of the Lord's earthly ministry. He didn't move among the ruling classes. He wasn't born in a palace. So in a manger. He certainly didn't buy into this celebrity culture that is rampant today and even men behind the pulpit seek it many are preoccupied with the external the prophet said he hath no form nor comeliness maybe I should say <clears throat> bring that out because Paul warns the believers in Corinthians about the external. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. Just to give you that. He says, but we have this treasure. He's speaking of the gospel. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, men and women, preoccupation with the vessel tends to obscure the treasure it contains. Can I say it again? Preoccupation with the vessel tends to obscure the treasure that is within. What's the vessel? The vessel is your body. The temple of the Holy Ghost. The, the, the treasure contained therein is the soul saved through the gospel. That's the treasure. It's obvious where our priority should lie. Not in the external. But there's so many people today and they're preoccupied with the external. At the expense of the, of the treasure. And Paul says to them, he says, we have this treasure. It's only in an earthen vessel, but it's this treasure, that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. Don't promote the external. Show forth the treasure that you have. Israel only judged the Lord by feeble sense. They saw in him in terms of the earthen vessel, and they duly saw no beauty in him. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. It may indicate, and again, we cannot be dogmatic, and it's a good job we can't, because the Lord doesn't give us any of the details of what the Savior looked like. That's why we don't show pictures in the children's work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
breaking the commandments. We don't need images. But there may be a sense in which there's nothing extraordinary about his appearance. But men and women, I'd rather take it in application this way. There's a time when you and I didn't see any beauty in Christ either. But then our eyes were opened by God's Spirit to see him in an altogether new way. And we saw him as our sin burner. And we saw him as our substitute. And since by grace he has been the fairest of all the earth beside. He is the chiefest of ten thousand to our souls. John understood that he was God. He understood the glory of God residing within and which was seen outwardly on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the word that he uses here, beheld, it speaks of a spectator. A spectator who's looking intently, he's looking closely at the subject. John could speak of from experience of days spent in the company and the presence of his glorious Lord and Saviour. He says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He, he's, he's writing from the standpoint of some years on now looking back. Recounting those experiences that he walked with the Lord for those three and a half years. He says we beheld his glory. We intently observed him. He beheld him intently. He gazed as did others on the only begotten of the Father, or as it could be read as the only child especially beloved. The one that they saw was full of grace and truth, a total divine revelation. What a spectacle. What a saviour. That's how John makes mention of the incarnation of Christ to this earth. He doesn't mention the earthly details as does the others. But then remember this, you see, his gospel is different from the other gospels. Because his gospel emphasizes his divinity. He was God manifest in the flesh. And just one final little thought I want to leave with you. (coughs) That is his introduction. Because having spoken of his coming to this earth, John then records what John the Baptist was to speak concerning him. We might say how he introduced him to the crowds that he preached. Verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred, preferred, preferred before me, for he was before me. It's John the Baptist who pointed him out by the river Jordan. As the Lamb of God. But you'll note in just these few words. What he says about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this person here. This was he of whom I speak. He bore witness of him. John didn't speak of himself. He spoke of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke of the bridegroom. The one who came to purchase his bride by his own precious blood. And John the Baptist, you turn over chapter 3, was one who stood and heard him. There's some some weird and wonderful interpretations of verse 29 of John 3. You don't need to go into the weird and wonderful, just take it. 
He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. That's Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, you'll have the great mystery of the marriage union of between the bride and the bridegroom. It's a picture of Christ and his church. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. John says, I was the friend of the bridegroom. We would suppose speak about it today in terms of the best man, the groom's man. And the best man stands with the, bri- with the bridegroom. He says, I stand with him. I heard him. I rejoice in him. There's no weird, wonderful tra- uh, translation or interpretation needed. John's just speaking of that relationship they had with Christ. And he was that close with him. He speaks of his preeminence. It says there in the words of verse 15 again, if we go back to it, he that cometh after me is preferred before me. He could speak of the incarnate word as one who is above all. And while John's disciples were jealous, all men were following the Lord. John had to remind them, had to rebuke them. He wasn't the Christ. But rather he was sent before him. He was always one who uplifted and exalted the Saviour before men. Luke chapter 3, verse 15, just to give you a wee example, verse 16. And as the people were in expectation, all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John answered, saying unto them, All I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And he goes on to speak of him. He says, I'm not worthy to unloose his shoelaces. He always exalted Christ. He always gave the Savior the preeminence. And verse 15, you'll notice how the Apostle John speaks of the pre-existence of Christ. This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. There are two befores in that verse. You'll note it. The first one is before in terms of position or place. This is he of whom I speak, he that cometh after me is preferred before me. He's before me in position, he's before me in place. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. But the second before is in terms of before in time or existence. For he was before me. Not just a priority of birth. Not just priority in terms of position. But reference to time. For though men and women, the Saviour was born in Bethlehem's manger, yet he was before John the Baptist. John the Baptist was six months older than him, humanly speaking. John says here, just in this one verse, for he was before me. He's coming as one out of eternity. Yeah. Again, going back to the opening words. Of the chapter 1. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son 
is given. He's from eternity. His pre-existence. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And men and women, that's the Christ he introduced to the people as the forerunner, as the messenger. And that's the Christ that we yet need to speak of to the common people. And we yet need to uplift before them. Because this world is as dark as sin as it was in those 400 years prior to the Saviour's coming. May the Lord help us in our task in Market Hill. This is a wee part of the vineyard that he has placed us in, the mission field. Our purpose is simply to uplift him, to uphold the Saviour before men and women. May the Lord bless even those few thoughts to your hearts tonight.